Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Everybody, I hope, has recovered from yesterday. Maybe a little tired. I see eyes that are already drooping. Gee. You know, we're, we're getting quite a schedule here. We've got Sunday morning, Ike's teaching Sunday night. We have Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. We're getting ramped up again. I <laughs> feel like I remember when you used to go like seven nights, Morgan, <laughs> nonstop. Didn't think anything about it. It's funny how we've kind of slowed down. It's hard to get speeding up again. So, All right, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we can come together at fellowship around your word and spend time encouraging one another. And the time we had yesterday was was uh, really tremendous. Father, we continue to remember that the freedom and liberty that we have just uh, at times may just hang by a thread, but that thread is strengthened by your grace. And we pray that you would continue to protect our nation, provide leaders with wisdom that comes from Bible doctrine. Father, we pray that you would uh, just uh, continue to protect us, keep us from uh, harm from our enemies, that we may continue to send out missionaries, that we may continue to stand as a, as a source of strength to Israel, and that we may, may continue to be a place where the truth is still taught from the pulpits of this country. We pray that tonight as we study your word that we would be able to concentrate focus on these things, think through some uh, intricate passages and concepts as we come to have a better understanding of the depth, the complexities, and the all the various facets of our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 5 tonight, Romans chapter 5, as we continue to work our way through the second of two big questions that come out of Hebrews Chapter 7, Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. And again tonight, I was reading through a particular uh, writer's comments, even on Romans 5 and the explanation that he had on some of the issues on Romans 5, 12, and following. This is another man that is a uh, world-class scholar, respected uh, exegete, and took a position of pure seminalism and he offered just no explanation, no defense, just cited Hebrews 7, 9 as if uh, this settles it. And once again, I find that very few exegetes deal with this one phrase that's there that's translated, as I have it on the screen, in a manner of speaking. 
indicating that this is really figure of speech. It's not talking about a, a, a literal reality, yet this verse is, seems to be the only verse people go to to defend this position of seminalism as well as, as traditionism. And as I pointed out before, those are, uh, are linked together. So the first question we dealt with was the origin of the soul and the transmission of the soul from one generation to another and how does, it, does human life progress. And the second question is the origin and transmission of sin and Adam's original sin. And this is important for us to understand because it gives us a, an understanding, a, an appreciation for the complexity of our salvation. Because if we don't understand the complexity of the problem and how the problem has manifested itself throughout the entire human race, then we tend to have a shallow and superficial view of our salvation, what Jesus Christ did on the cross and the intricacies of God's plan of salvation and what he did in order to save us. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is one of the most significant passages or sections in the entire Bible. It draws to a conclusion not only the argument that uh, Paul uses in Romans 5. Now, use the word argument. The, the average person uses the word argument, two people disagreeing with each other and yelling at each other. But that is not the way it's used in l- legal-type literature. You have a somebody who presents a case for something that's called an argument. And so in literature, you talk about somebody who is presenting a case for something, building uh, a case for a particular position, uh, and that is also called an argument, and that's what I mean in this particular section. Paul has built an argument in the previous chapters for the necessity of salvation and how faith justifies, when faith in Christ justifies the imputation of righteousness and the need for righteousness and salvation. In chapter 5, we have a focus on the results, which is Peace with God and resurrection, then, I mean, through reconciliation. And then in verse 12, we come to a conclusion that, that wraps up not only chapter 5, but also the section from 118 down through 511. We need to overview our section here in verse 12. He begins a comparison and contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's work. And we have to be very careful here. Just as Paul is very careful, he begins the comparison note in verse 12, therefore just as, and he only gets the first part of the comparison in, and before he gets to the second aspect, the, the part about Christ, he stops, as it were, and thinks, well, I better make sure I qualify this as much as I can because I don't want people taking this comparison and this contrast too far. I'm not comparing everything about Adam and Christ. I'm not comparing everything about sin and its being passed on to all humanity and what Christ did on the cross. I'm just comparing two tight areas. And so he stops to qualify, and his qualification includes a definition of sin and death, an explanation of it in verses 13 and 14. And then in verses 15 through 17, he shows the contrast between Christ 
and Adam, the differences before he will compare them. And then in verse 18 uh, to 21, he comes back to the comparison. So verse 12 begins the comparison and contrast. Verses 13 through 14 gives an explanation of sin and death and how that's passed on to the whole human race. Verses 15 to 17 contrast Christ and Adam. And then he comes back to the uh, and connects the comparison between Adam's sin and its application of condemnation to all men and Christ's righteousness and man's justification through his substitutionary work in verse 18. Now, when we come to verse 12, Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, there's some important nuances to the grammar here that we have to pay attention to and some things that we can uh, learn from the way this is set up. But the question that we are answering is how does this last part happen? We, we read, just as through one man's sin entered the world, we understand that in terms of Adam's uh, sin is disobedience. He ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3. That's how sin entered the world, and that's how death entered the world. But how does death spread to all men? That's the question. In what way does death spread to all men and uh, sin to all men. So let's just review a couple of things I said last time, and we're going to take, I'm going to review things I said last time, but in that review what I've done is is I've expanded within almost everything I I said last night, uh, last time. So as you uh, listen, you're going to see parallels, but then watch for the things that I've added. Start off with the therefore, Diatuta in the Greek describes the ground, the motive, or the cause of something. Literally, it's for this reason, which would be a better translation. For this reason, uh, just as through one man. So he is expanding on and concluding the entire section. And he sets up this comparison that we see in the English with a good translation, just as. It's the uh, Greek word hosper just as which introduces a comparison that he's going to make between the first Adam and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. He then qualifies it in the next few verses and finally completes the uh, uh, comparison in verse 18. Now, when you get down to uh, some of the details in this particular passage, there is a lot of debate over just how the grammar just how the grammar impacts our understanding of the of the text. And the other key word that we look at is this phrase right here, and thus, as it is set up in the Greek text. And it is the in the Greek kai, which is the word for and, and hutos, kai hutos. And it really means in this manner as follows. This is the same adverb that you have at the beginning of, of John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life when we have that phrase for God so loved the greek there that's translated so is this adverb hutos 
And you'll hear some people take it as meaning the degree. God loved the world so much that he uh, gave his only begotten son. But that's not what this word means. It's a word that means thusly or in the manner that follows. It, it, it focuses on what is about to be said. So we should translate John 3.16 in this way or in this manner, or thusly God loved the world, in this way God loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son. It indicates manner, stresses manner, how something is done. So when we come to this particular verse and we read the phrase, and thus, or in this way, death spread to all men. In what way? Uh, Because all sinned, that... Uh, tells us that the ground for this is because all sinned, and we have to understand the connection. How did they sin? Is this emphasizing actual, personal, individual sins, or is it positional? And I've already indicated that in the way I've translated this. In this manner, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam positionally, not seminally, but positionally. And that's our position in Adam it has to do with this spiritual death. Now, in the Greek, you have two different ways you can set up this hutos construction. The way we have it is and thus, or a kai, a kai hutos. But there, there, and that always suggests what I've said, that it's an expansion of the initial comparison it is not giving the other side of the comparison. And if you were going to give the other side of the comparison, you would reverse the two, and that's been demonstrated through very technical studies, and it bears itself out on, on uh, consistently that when you have hutos kai, it would indicate the, uh, the other side of the comparison. Uh, you have one side just as through... Uh, just as through one man sin entered the world, and on the other side, death through sin, and that would be, and, and death through sin, and, and thus, and also, or thus also, and that just doesn't work out, and doesn't make sense in Greek. There are various scholars who try to argue that, but the kaihutos is a very technical phrase in Greek, that, and it in, indicates an extension of the original comparison. So all that we have in verse 12 is the initial side of the comparison, what's happening in regard to Adam. He doesn't make it to Christ yet. And then there's this break. It's called an anacoluthan where you you start to talk about something, all of a sudden you're reminded, well, before I get any further, I need to expand on this. I need to elucidate that, maybe tell this story. And it's some, with some people that becomes a rabbit trail, and it may be a long time before you get back to the to the main track. And that's what Paul does in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, is he is going to make sure everybody understands what those qualifications are so they don't take the, the comparison too far. So we, therefore, just as through one man, sin enters the world. Now let me go back to that verse again. Notice it says, just as through one man, sin enters the world. What's the next thing we mention? And death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now I skipped that second that death through sin because that's, that phrase need to be ta- needs to be taken as in its entirety. Through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, 
Death spread to all men because all sin. So what do you have? You have a chiasm. Sin, death, death, sin. And so there's our familiar X for the Greek letter uh, chi, or as it's pronounced in um, most scholarly uh, treatments of Greek, key, not like you do in college fraternities as a chi, but this is a key, and it has, and the focal point is what's in the center, which is death. That's the center part of the chiasm. And so the emphasis here is on the death and the spreading of death to all men because that is the penalty for sin. And so just the way it's structured indicates what the author is putting the emphasis on. So we read, just as through one man, the through is the Greek preposition dia, with the genitive which indicates the means. It's through the means of one man that sin enters the world. And then you have three verbs in this sentence. You have entered, which is the verb ace erkomai. Now, this is the root verb is erkomai, which means to go, uh, to come. In, in, in its own sense, it can have the idea of entering. And then it can have uh, various uh, prefixes, various prepositions or prefix to it. Ace means to go into or to enter. Ex erkomai, ex means to go out, so it means to come out of. So ex erkomai, those are very important words when you're studying demon possession because you always have the interchange between the demon going into something, ace erkomai, and then being cast out of or told to come out of someone, ex erkomai, which indicates a demon possession is going into and coming out of. It's not just some intense form of demon influence. So here we have this idea of something going into something else. It's the the picture of someone entering the front door of a house, going inside. So this depicts sin entering into the world. The Greek word for world here is cosmos, which we're familiar with because uh, this is the world system. But there's another sense to world, which just refers to the inhabited planet. And this is the same use that John has in John 3.16, for God loved the world in this manner. God loved what? He loved the world, the inhabited planet. And so we read, just as through one man sin entered the inhabited planet. It stands for the human race, that sin enters into the human race, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. And now we have another verb. It is de-erkamai. Dia, the Greek preposition dia, plus the same verb erkamai. So acerkamai means to go into or to enter, and de-erkamai has the idea of passing through something, like it's used of a sword piercing the body and passing through the body. It's used of Jesus Christ who passes through the heavens in his ascension to the throne of God. It's also used of someone who's traveling through various regions to get to another area. So the idea here is that sin enters the world through this doorway. The doorway is Adam's decision, Adam's sin. And when he chose to eat the fruit, sin then walks through the door and enters into the human race and enters into human history. And with it comes death. There's a companion 
with sin and it brings with it death. And then we say in this manner, through this entry into the world, death spread, thusly death spread to all men because all sin. So it says thus, what is to come, death spread. And it's the idea of, <clears throat> let's say you had a, uh, a gas leak in your house and somebody turned on the valve and the gas would enter the house through that valve. And then what does it do? It starts to fill up the space of the house. And that's this idea here of death spreading. Uh, it would be like gas spreading throughout the whole house. So death spreads throughout the entire human race. And in, in this manner, death spread to all men because all sinned positionally. We have one more verb. So we have acercomai, we have diercomai, and both of these are aorist active indicatives. And then the third verb in the sentence is the last one, because all sinned, and that's hamartano, meaning to fall, uh, to, to uh, miss the mark. And this also is an aorist active indicative. And the fact that all three are aorist tenses indicates that they all refer to a past event. This is all something that has been uh, completed. So we have about... I have about four observations to make on this particular passage at this point. Number one, the reason for death is sin. So that's going to have implications on the kind of death that we have here. The reason for sin, according to this passage, I I mean the reason for death is sin. Secondly, it's the sin of one man that enters the world, and it is, third thing is it is death, which accompanies sin, that goes not just to Adam, but also to the whole, to the whole world. So the reason for death is sin. Sin enters in the door because of Adam's decision, and when sin enters the door, sin has a an, an accompaniment, and that is death. And that brings us to the fourth observation, that these three Aristotle's verbs indicate that the entire human race is viewed as sinning in Adam's one sin. And that fits the parallel that we have in Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned. You know, we have an Aristotle indicative of Hamartano again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't talk about the fact that all uh, are going to sin. There are some that haven't lived yet that still have yet to sin. It is talking about all, every member of the human race has already sinned. That's why we get into this discussion about, well, how did that happen in relationship to Adam? What, what exactly was the, was the way that this sin spread to all men? Is it positional or is it actual? Now, let me, under, let me help you understand this a little differently. I've used the term federal in the past. Federal indicates a representative, that Adam functioned as a representative. Similarly means that we actually participated in some physical way in Adam's sin when he sinned. And that's based on, that's, every time you read anything on that, it's based on the Hebrew 7 passage. So how does this death spread to all men? Now, another word I want to use that's like uh, the federal word, maybe make it a little clear to you, it might be more familiar to you, is the word positional. 
we are positionally in Adam, not just we are physically there. And it's important, as I pointed out before, there's dimensions of both of these that are true. It's not this either or uh, kind of thing, and that's why I'm spending some time on this is to try to understand the distinctions here. So we go to this next phrase, and thus, or in this manner, this is how death spread to all men, because all sin. So in what way did we participate in that original original sin? Well, this is based on a very unusual construction in the Greek here. First we have the phrase kaihutas, which I've already mentioned several times, in this manner that follows. This is the way death spread to all men because all sin. So the writer views this that all, every human being, sinned in Adam's sin. It's not, you, you, you are not a sinner because you sin. This is one of those fun little uh, uh, twi- brain twister sayings that people love to use in Bible college and seminary. Are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? See, most people think they're a sinner because they sin, but that's not biblical. The Bible teaches that you sin because you are a sinner. And that's what this is pointing out. In this manner to follow, this is how death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam's sin. Now, how did they, how did we participate in that sin? Was it physical or was it positional? And I'm going to argue that it's actually, actually both. So remember, I already gave you four points that we looked at up to that point. I'm kind of in interspersing this in the middle between four and five. Um, But we have this first phrase, thus in this manner all sinned, because all sinned. And then we have this phrase, it's translated because, but in the Greek it's made up of two words, epi, which is uh, contracted to an F there because it's followed by another uh, vowel. Uh, Epi plus the dative of a masculine uh, pronoun, epi, ho. And so the question is, well, what does this mean? In fact, there's about eight or nine different suggestions as to how to handle this. Now, this is where you get into really fun exegesis because what you have to do is look at these. I mean, if you really had the time to do everything on this that you wanted to, what you would do is you would trace each one out, look for all of the different commentators who took each different position, look at their arguments, look at their general theological frameworks, and then compare and contrast those and trace how those views were held uh, down through history. That's the, that's the stuff doctoral dissertations are made of. But when you're cranking through uh, Bible class on a regular basis, you just don't have time always to, to do that, but you have to do it at some sort of at least a quick superficial level, just to make sure you're not headed down the wrong road. And most commentators have taken this to to indicate because, but not always for the right reasons. It seems to be basically uh, an idiom that is used, and it takes the conjunction, this, this whole thing is a conjunction, meaning because, and it understands the sin here to refer not to man's actual individual sinning, but to their participation in Adam's original sin 
positionally. Now, I'm emphasizing that positional. That's my conclusion based on the fact that the seminal position has such little uh, weight to it. But let's just go on, and, and I'm going to add some stuff as we go through this. And once again, I want to remind you of the, these two views. I've been using the terms throughout the lesson so far, but I've added a little bit to both of these, So, and I've underlined what I've added to help you see the difference. Now, seminalism. As I've said before, this is the view that the entire human race, body and soul, was genetically present in Adam. Not just positionally, but genetically. Thus, God considered every human being to be physically participating in Adam's original sin and thus receiving the same penalty. What, what this view is saying is when Adam made that decision, you made it too. You're right there with him in a very real sense. I have I have problems with that, uh, not only exegetically but just conceptually. Okay, and as I said, this view is usually connected to the traditionist view of the transmission of the soul. In contrast, federalism is a view that Adam stood as the head and representative of the human race. Adam's decisions were on behalf of all humanity. God viewed Adam's sin as the act of all people through representation. As I'm working through this, the idea that comes back again and again is this idea of representation. I entitled the lesson tonight, Sin, colon, Representation, Substitution, and Imputation. We have to look at the other side of this comparison, where Paul is going here, because what he's talking about is what happens with, with Adam and sin and how that gets passed on to the human race is related to what happens when Christ dies as our representative, as our spiritual substitute on the cross, and where his righteousness is imputed to us. We have Adam's sin being imputed to us. We also have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So to make sense of both of these, we have to recognize that there is there has to be a representative a dimension to this, not a not simply a real or physical or genetic uh, connection. Now, the problem that some people have with this, it's been raised with me, is that the the more extreme forms of this federal sense were represented in covenant theology. But this isn't a view that is restricted to covenant theology. In fact, as I pointed out last time in discussing various theologians through the ages that have held the different views, there many of them are covenant theologians, many seminalists. Most seminalists are covenant theologians. Most uh, federalists are covenant theologians. So it's not something that is inherent to uh, covenant theology. So this was really point number five. I made four observations. The first one was that... Um, Reason for sin is death. The second one, the sin of one man enters the whole world. Third, the sin brings death not only to the one, but to the whole. Fourth, the three Aristotle verbs indicate that the entire human race is viewed as sinning in, one's, in, in Adam's one sin. And then we digress to Romans 3.23. Look at the last phrase, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And now I'm at point five, which is the two views on how this happened. Now, point number six, I want to review the chart from last time just to give you one more shot at, at uh, looking at this. 
that there are basically uh, four view, four main views on this particular subject of how sin is transmitted and imputed, and the guilt of Adam's sin is transmitted and imputed to mankind. You have the Pelagian view, the Arminian view, the Federal view, and the Augustinian view. There are some views that fall kind of in between. For example, you have a view called the semi-Pelagian view, which was the view that was adopted at the Council of Orange. That's spelled orange for most of you. At the Council of Orange, that where the Roman Catholic Church officially adopted what is called a semi-Pelagian position. I brought that up because somebody came up last week and said, well, what about the Roman Catholic position? Because that wasn't in the chart originally. The Pelagian view is that people incur death when they sin after Adam's example. They would understand Romans 5.12 to be saying, death spread to all men because all actually sinned. So it is only when they actually sin that the death spreads to them because they are born neutral without a sin nature, without corruption, and they get to make their own own decision, which is no different from Adam's original uh, decision. They are uh, born with uh, the ab- same absolute freedom in one sense that Adam had and that um, is, is uh, hindered by the fall. For them, Adam's sin affected only Adam. Uh, no, one in, no one else in humanity was affected by Adam's sin, and the modern adherents of this would be Unitarians. The semi-Pelagian view is the view that's held by Roman Catholics. That's why Roman Catholics tend to have this rather positive view of people, that everybody's somehow going to get to heaven, everybody's basically good enough. You may have to work a little more when you get to purgatory, but everybody is not as, they're not really dead, they're just sick. For Pelagians, they're not really sick. They don't get sick until they sin. But for semi-Pelagians, they're, they're just sick. For Arminians, they're a little sicker. All people consent to Adam's sin, then sin is imputed. See, they're not dead, they're just real sick. Now just think about that, how it affects your political theory. Just think how that affects your view of criminality, of, of the penal system, or what, what the purpose of the penal system is, or just your view of corporal punishment on children. See, these things are not just abstract theological doctrines. Isn't that interesting? Somebody held this view. See, your next-door neighbor holds one of these views. He doesn't know it. Maybe you can tell him. <laughs> they're probably a Pelagian. They think their little baby that is you know, throwing rotten eggs at your house is just totally, totally perfect and sinless. And so when they grow up and join a gang... And then they go to prison. The prison warden thinks the same thing because he's there to uh, rehabilitate them and not to punish them. See, that's the difference. See, but they don't, they don't know that they've got bad theology. They just are ignorant. So the Arminian view is that they're just really, really sick and they just need help. And that's the purpose of the church is to, to, to help people. And so that was what Charles Grandison Finney was doing. That's why his view of, he, he invented the whole anxious bench, walk the aisle, sing 67 verses of just as I am, because you've got to help people to want to be saved. You've got to encourage them to be saved, and you've got to emotionally motivate them 
to get up and, or, and walk down the aisle because they're basically good. They don't need to trust in Christ. They don't need to just understand the gospel and make a decision. So that's the Arminian view. For the Arminians, Adam sinned, and it partially affected uh, humanity, just made them real sick. Depravity isn't total. They're just they're, they're still flopping around a little bit. They're partially alive. And so uh, they receive a corrupt nature from Adam, but they're not, uh, they don't have the guilt and the full corruption. They're not spiritually dead. This is Methodist, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, holiness groups. You know, after listening to Bill talk last night about the fact that Islam is not a peaceful religion, and people need to wake up and realize that Islam isn't a peaceful religion, but just imagine if you are a Methodist, especially if you are a modern Methodist. I mean, up here I'm talking really about historical Methodists. But if you're a modern Methodist where you're somewhere between Pelagian and Arminian, you think people are basically good, don't you think you have a predisposition because of your view of man to to want Islam to just be a peaceful religion? So if you are a Methodist and you have only heard and been taught anything about Christianity from a Methodist viewpoint, then you're going to be predisposed that way, even if you're the President of the United States. See, theology makes a difference. You know, people keep trying to say that Bush is an evangelical. Bush is not an evangelical, people. You know, you go look at Gallup's website and his very tight definition of an evangelical, and he concludes only 9% of Americans are evangelicals. You go to NBC or CNN and their very broad definition of an evangelical, and they'll conclude that as many as 40% of Americans are evangelicals. So this is why we have a problem and why people are blaming evangelicals for a lot of stuff. It's not their fault. They're not, they're not evangelicals. I've got a book on church history and it consistently refers to Charles Grandison Finney as an evangelical. He didn't believe in total depravity or substitutionary atonement or any of those things. How can he be an evangelical? This word means nothing to people anymore. So anyway, this just sort of gives you a little bit of a practical understanding of, of, of these ideas. They're not just abstract theological concepts that don't affect everyday living. They give us good categories. Uh, among Calvinists, they hold to federal view, a federal view and an Augustinian view, and in that sense we would uh, uh, agree with this very much, and uh, much of our background has to do with... Uh, uh, different elements, influence of Calvinism, their high view of Scripture, their low view of man, their high view of Christ's work on the cross are things that are, that, that are very much a part of our, our, of our thinking. In fact, many of the founding fathers of dispensationalism in the 19th century came out of a Presbyterian and Calvinistic background. So that is Chafer uh, was, Schofield was, Darby was. Okay, federal view is that sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. Adam is a representative, and it's imputed. Uh, it's not real. It's, even though I, <clears throat> this chart, which I took out of the Moody Handbook on Theology, argues that the Augustinian view says that sin is imputed, they haven't made a distinction because if humanity is actually sinning in Adam, it's more than simple imputation. It is an actual uh, actual involvement. In the federal view, Adam alone sinned, but the human race is affected. In the uh, 
view of how it affects the human race, total depravity, uh, to, uh, depravity is total, sin and, sin and guilt are imputed, and Presbyterians hold to this as well as others who are influenced by various aspects of uh, uh, Reformed theology. In the Augustinian view, sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin, but it's because humanity sins in Adam. That's the distinction. And so what we're really talking about here is that the difference between these two and how to work out some of these distinctions. For them, depravity is also total. Sin and guilt are imputed to every human being, and this affects many Reformers, later Calvinists, as well as Lutherans in the classic sense. You always have to understand there's a difference between a Wesley and a Methodist before 19th century liberalism and after 19th century liberalism. There's a difference between Lutherans before 19th century liberalism and after 19th century liberalism. Lutherans today, unless you're Missouri Synod or a couple of other conservative, small conservative denominations, Lutherans aren't Lutheran, Presbyterians aren't Presbyterian, Methodists aren't Methodists. They're liberals. They've all bought into 19th century liberal theology and rejected the fundamentals of the faith. And the fundamentals of the faith have to do with the infallibility of Scripture, the belief in miracles, belief in a substitutionary atonement, belief in the virgin birth, belief in a literal return of Jesus Christ and the future and the second coming. And if you don't believe in those things, then you are, uh, you are a liberal in theology. You, have, you don't, do not accept biblical authority. That's the, that's the foundation. And all the major denominations... Uh, bought into that in the late 19th century, and they fragmented, and then they all got li- all the fragments got liberal, and they rejoined. So you had the United Methodists and United Presbyterians, and and the United Church of Christ. So anybody who's united is liberal. Just remember that they're not flying the friendly skies; they're just liberal. So we have to answer four questions in relation to uh, our understanding of of sin here. Let me stop a minute. I have a few more points. Seventh point, before we get to the three questions. I've got five more points. Seventh point, an overview of the argument of Romans 5, 12 to 21, shows that the argument here is based on a comparison and analogy between Adam and the effect of his sin and Christ and the application of his substitutionary death. Let me say that again. An overview here shows that Paul's argument is taking two things. He's going to compare Adam and Christ. You have this comparison and analogy between Adam on the one hand and the effect of his sin and Christ and the application of his substitutionary atonement on the other hand. One, if, if Christ's death is representative and substitutionary, then there must be a representative and substitutionary element to what Adam does in the garden. So those two ideas can't be separated. So you definitely have a federal or representational or positional idea that has to be present in both for the analogy to work. Eighth point, I'm going to develop that a little more. Adam is able to be the... and, and, And this, excuse me, the eighth point develops the other side of it. Adam is able to be the representative of the race because he's genetically related to the race. 
Christ is able to be the representative of the race because he is genetically related to the race. So you have both elements are true. There is a representative or positional element, and there is a physical and genetic element. They're both true. So ninth point, Adam is the designated representative because God knows in his omniscience that any of us put in Adam's place in the garden would have done the same thing. You may think you wouldn't, but that's only because hindsight is better than foresight. But God made Adam in such a way that he knew that any of us eventually would have made the same decision Adam made. So he is our representative in the same way that uh, that as a designated representative, when his decisions are just as significant as ours, just as if you live in a district where you have a, a representative sent to Congress and they vote on a certain law because of the way representational uh, democracy works, that's your vote. You may not like it, but that's your vote. He's a designated representative. So the seventh point is that an overview shows that there's this comparison between the two and that both have a representational aspect. Point number eight, Adam is able to be representative of the race because he's genetically related to the race, and Christ is able to be a substitute for the race because he's genetically related to the human race. Ninth, Adam is a designated rep representative because God knows that any of us in his place would do the same thing. His sin, therefore, is our sin as, our, as a representative. Eleventh, the entire concept of imputation rests on some sort of representative reality. Why do, does Adam's sin have to be imputed to me if I am actually there in him somehow doing it? In seminalism. doesn't make sense. It's not doesn't fit, fit the logic. You don't need to impute something to somebody if they've actually done it. But our sins are, Adam's sin is imputed to us. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So this reinforces a representative positional idea. And then last, point 10, what did you go? 8, 9, 10. That's what I just did, and 11. Because the sin had genetic effects on the human body. It affects the race that derives from Adam biologically so that the sin nature, as we'll see, has a physical dimension to it that is passed on from generation to generation. That's why you have these physical material terms that are used to describe the sin nature. Romans 6 talks about the body of sin throughout uh, Romans, Galatians, uh, several other places talks about, uses the word flesh, to describe the sin nature. So this indicates a physical dimension to the corruption and guilt of Adam that is transmitted through, uh, through procreation. Now that leads us to these four questions. What is sin? What is the penalty for sin? What is the sin nature's relationship to the corporeal human body? We're going to stop and look at some of those passages that talk about the body of sin and flesh, and then finally how that's passed on. And what we're going to see is that the sin nature is passed on corporeally and physically, 
But the guilt of Adam's original sin is imputed at birth. That's where it starts to connect to what we studied about the transmission, origin and transmission of human life. Okay, last time I gave you several Greek words for sin. I'll review those in the middle of this, but now I want to go back to the Old Testament and look at three key words in the Old Testament for sin because the New Testament doctrine of sin comes out of the Old Testament. The first word is kata, and you have two different forms there. You have kata and kata, meaning to miss the mark, to wrong. It's translated to sin, to lead into sin, to purify from sin, or to free from sin. It's the idea of missing the mark. That is the core idea. The root occurs about 580 times in the Old Testament and is the primary word in the Old Testament for sin. It comes out of a basic meaning of just missing a mark, missing a target. When you go down to the pistol range and you don't hit the paper, you have sinned. You have missed the mark. That's how it's used in Judges 20, verse 16. Among all this people, talking about the Benjamites, were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not sin. Not miss the target. That's the word, chata. You also have it in Proverbs uh, 19.2. Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he who misses the mark, that is, he's without knowledge or is ignorant, hastens uh, with his feet. This is uh, indicates a guy who is uh, who, who stumbles or trips. He misses his way, actually. He who misses his way hastens with his feet. And then Proverbs 8, 36, But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. This is the concept of missing a goal. He who misses the goal or, or fails me wrongs his own soul. All that hate me uh, love death. So these words all have the more of a... Uh, non-theological sense of just simply uh, missing the mark. Hata has the idea of breaching civil law. It can relate to criminality, breaking the law. And like all the other words for sin, it assumes that there is an absolute objective standard or law that is missed. It's not a subjective idea. Sin is not equated to emotional guilt. Sin is breaking an external objective standard or law. You have this, and, and Hata emphasizes that idea of missing the mark of breaking the law. And the second word, Avon, wait a minute, I skipped Pesah. Uh, Pesah means transgression or rebellion. And it can relate to an interpersonal violation our violation of one nation against another, but the word primarily expresses a rebellion against God and his laws. So hata indicates a violation of the law, breaking the law. Pesa indicates a revolt against the standard or against the law. And avon, which is translated iniquity, evil, guilt, or punishment, has the idea of deviating from the standard or twisting the standard.
So those are your three primary words uh, that are used. The dictionary sometimes says four. The fourth is ra, which is evil, which is uh, a little bit different. Okay, New Testament, we have the words we looked at last time. Hamarti is virtually synonymous to hechlata. It, it means to miss the mark, miss the standard of God's character or his righteousness. Then we looked at parabasis, which has to do with offense, meaning to transgress or break the law. All these assume an external standard again. Paptoma means to fall by the wayside, and so it has the idea of transgression, violating moral standards or wrongdoing. Those three I covered last time, and I think I also mentioned parakoe, which means an act of disobedience. Uh, then, to now I'm going to add four more. Plane means to wander out of the way, and this is used in a few passages, and it's usually a figurative, a figurative use of the word for error. First Thessalonians 2, 3, the error of the Antichrist. Second Thess, excuse me, Second Thess 2.11 is error for an Antichrist. Ephesians 4.14, Second Peter 3.17, using error for sin. We have plane. Then the next word is anomia. A is just the negative prefix, and nomia has to do with law, so it just means lawlessness, used in 1 John 3.4 and Romans 4.7. Anomia simply refers to lawlessness. Then you have another word with that same alpha privative, adikia. That A is just like a U-N in English. It negates the concept. It means unrighteousness or unjust. First John 5.17 says all adikia is sin. Very important passage. Adikia is just a synonym for sin. It's unrighteousness. And then a fourth uh, new word is paranomia, which is that which is contrary to law. Para against nomia from law, against law. So you have anomia, which is lawless, and paranomia, which is contrary to law. So these words all indicate that there's an external standard, there's a violation of the standard, you miss the standard, you break the standard, you transgress the standard, you twist or distort the standard, and all of these ideas are what sin is. And the standard is God's character. Now, that helps us understand what sin is. So next time, that addresses the first question, what is sin? Next time, we're going to look at what the penalty for sin is, what the sin nature's relationship is to the corporeal human body and how this is passed on, and we will get into the next two verses in Romans 5 and try to understand them. These are very difficult verses to understand. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What does that mean? Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned, even though it's not imputed where there is no law, there's no law before Moses. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam and Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. The point that he's making is there was death there. Death came through sin because all sinned. So obviously it is not the individuals making sinful decisions that brought death to them, but some prior decision which would be Adam's original sin. So we'll get into 13 and 14 
uh, next time and answer the uh, the other uh, the other three questions of our four questions. Okay, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening to get into these things, think a little more precisely about the problem that man faces as a sinner and also the extent of the solution that you've provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our salvation that is complete and sufficient and that everything was taken care of by his substitutionary death on the cross. We pray that we might not forget that we have been bought with a price and therefore we are to glorify you in everything. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.